Christian contentment. How often do you think about contentment? What is contentment? This is Paul's theme here in verses 6 through 10. Godly contentment and its inverse, which is the love of money, desire to be wealthy. I would say, and maybe you'll agree with me, that contentment is an attitude that is very hard to have in our country, in our culture. Our economy is largely operated and driven by greed, covetousness, the desire to have more and more. Don't you sit back sometimes and think, what do we actually need? And isn't it difficult sometimes to sort through your own life and your own possessions and begin to ask the question, what is it that I actually need for this life? And it's hard to think through that because everything around us incites this sense of desire to have more. More material things. More buying power. Materialism is the foundational doctrine of the American religion. It has even crept into the church, has it not? It's one of the main motivations for receiving Christ that you hear often on Sunday mornings. Lord willing, not here, but in America in general. Christ will satisfy your material desires. Seek Him and trust in Him. Right? That's, that's the message. That Jesus is the servant of your material desires. We look at what can be purchased and possessed and experienced and we become then discontent in our hearts. Have you ever been moved to a place of discontentment in your heart because of what you've seen someone else has? I don't think there's anyone in this room that could say, no, that's never happened to me. We all struggle with this. We're driven by that desire to have more. We're distracted from that which truly matters or has value. So, so I want to ask you this morning to think as you come to this text with me, and this is such a soul-searching text. Believe me, I know. I've been in it this week, and I, I almost did what my brother Jeremy recommended one time. He goes, have you ever, you know, he, he recommended that be, well, as I'm studying and I come to them and say, I'm not quite ready for this, well, then preach something else. And I almost did that this week because this text needs to wash in my soul, and it needs to wash through yours as well. Are you content? Are you discontent? You know, Christian contentment has little to do with how much you have and everything to do with the attitude and desires of your heart. Even the pagan Greek philosopher, and I'm not going to be expositing Epicurus today, but it was curious what he said. The secret of contentment is not to add more to a man's possessions, but to take away from his desires. That's Epicurus. And Paul often quoted these sorts of people and drew from what they said the truth and then exposed the, his listeners to God's truth. A man who is rich in worldly materials 
may be extremely discontent. Why? Because he desires to have more. And a poor man who has his basic worldly needs met may be completely content because he desires no more. Contentment has everything to do with our desires and nothing to do with how much we have. And so in this text, the Apostle Paul calls us to Christian contentment by addressing our desires, our affections, our perspectives. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to bring the truths of this text powerfully into our heart and change us. Part of the issue is we may sit here and hear this text and be moved by it. I hope we all will be, but then the, the difficulty is when we put the mirror away and then we go out into our lives and live and, and, our, and our whole thinking and motivation process hasn't been altered yet. And we go back to the same perspectives and desires that we came in with. I don't want that. So, you know how it is. You, you, you come to a text and it's moving to you and it changes your mind in that moment. And then you ask God later on in the week, God, please remind me of that. Bring, bring those new perspectives and desires to come weightily on me again here now in this struggle and help me to remember. Help me to think differently by the power of your Spirit. I want that, don't you? It's so hard sometimes to, to, I mean, it's the work of the Spirit that would so change us that we think and behave differently. So the, the main idea of this text is if you are in Christ and pursuing godliness, be content with what God provides for you. If you are in Christ and pursuing godliness, be content with what God provides for you. And really, this text answers the question, how can I be content? How? How can we be content? In this world, in this culture, in this country, this time, how can we be content? And there's two overall answers that the Apostle Paul gives to us. And the first answer is to embrace the understanding of the godly contented. And the second is to escape the destruction of the worldly covetous. It's, it's one of those fatherly proverbial things that Paul is doing here. He, he explains to us the, the perspective and the understanding that, and the heart that brings contentment. And then he says, now look at this. Here is the other alternative. You don't want this alternative. And so he warns us. So verses 6, 7, and 8 are the positive perspective of the godly contented. The understanding that they have and the reason for their contentment. And then verses 9 and 10 are the warning that Paul gives. Let's look at these two points together today. Number one, embrace the understanding of the godly contented. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The first thing that the godly contented understands is what truly is great gain. Understand what is truly great gain. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. Not, not material things. It's redefining in your heart, in your mind, what is great gain. What is truly valuable? And godliness is to be the source of our contentment. Well, how is that so? 
How is that so? Well, I think to answer that, we need to understand what godliness is and what contentment is. Let's define those words. Those are central to our understanding of this text. What is godliness? Well, if you look up the basic definition in a Greek lexicon, you will find something like this. Reverence and piety toward God. Godliness. Reverence and piety toward God. Well, what do those two words mean? Reverence and piety. Reverence. Reverence toward God. That is, doesn't that speak of knowing God as He truly is and then responding appropriately to Him in my heart? Living in awe of Him because I know God as He is. And of course, that reality of knowing God and responding rightly to God is something that is only true of a, a, a Christian, a true believer, a child of God. Piety also speaks of knowing God and responding appropriately to Him, but I think piety also encompasses not just the response of the heart, but also the response to God through the duties of my life, from religious duties to the mundane duties of my daily existence. In all things, I have this sense of the presence of God, the awareness of God's greatness and glory, and my affections are toward Him, so I live and behave out of that awareness of God. It's living with my mind, my affection set on God, to know Him as He is, to admire Him, to value Him and love Him and give Him thanksgiving and praise and trust. Living with my behaviors toward God is to walk in obedience, to walk in fellowship with Him, to speak of Him and the Gospel to others, to work to serve and love others for the glory of God. Godliness encompasses all of life. It's a a life that is moving toward knowing God and making Him known in all that I do. It's to live out of a sense of awe of who He is and gratitude that you're His child, that he, He is yours and you are His. A passionate desire to magnify Him before others and be used by Him to advance His kingdom. That's what it means to be godly. To be Christ-like. A life filled with the knowledge and presence and, and affection of God so that, it, that, it, that knowledge governs everything you do. What's contentment? That word was used by the ancient Greek Stoics to mean self-sufficiency. That's self-sufficiency is kind of the classical historic definition of contentment. A self-mastery that lives independently of and unaffected by one's circumstances and therefore feels no need and no desire to seek more because of the pressures of one's environment. Self-sufficient. Self-mastery. I don't need anything, no matter how my circumstances change. Well, Paul wouldn't agree with that pagan definition of contentment, but I think he would agree to change his definition from self-sufficiency to what? God-sufficiency. Christ-sufficiency. 
Contentment is to be satisfied in God, to be sufficed in Christ. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.5, Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Or 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Contentment is, is living in the, in the settled rest of that mindset that God is able to make all grace, all sufficiency at all times so that I can do all that He calls me to do, every good work. Paul explained this contentment in wonderful detail in Philippians 4. And I I hope to have the joy of walking through that chapter with us at some time. Uh, what a wonderful section about contentment, Christian contentment. He says in verse four, chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to what? Be content. Then he describes different situations. He goes, I know how to be brought low. And, and by the way, where was Paul when he was writing this? He was in prison. He was under house arrest. He was content even there with minimal provisions. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is Paul saying? My circumstances are irrelevant to my contentment. It doesn't matter. I know the secret of being content. Why? Verse 13, I can do all things. I can can abound. I can be brought low. And everything in between. I I can navigate with contentment every life situation. I can do all things through what? Him who gives me strength. That's Christ's sufficiency, isn't it? to be totally dependent upon Christ to satisfy your necessities of earthly life while seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Contentment is having a heart and mind that is satisfied with what God provides for you as you passionately pursue a life of godliness. One writer said something like this, and I'll paraphrase. Our direct... When I heard this, this, this was a shift in my mind a little bit more. I want you to hear this. Our direct pursuit must be godliness. When you you work, when you rest, when you spend, when you save, in all of the things of life, right? Your pursuit is godliness, not, not money. How often does money motivate us when we get up and work every day? God says, let godliness motivate you in your work, not the material things of life. And then we trust God and be content with what He provides through our pursuit of godliness in all things. It's like like seeking after joy. When you seek joy, you don't get it. When you seek God, you get joy, right? When you seek godliness, the Father will meet your needs and you'll receive contentment. You see? It's it's a different objective all the time for the Christian. 
And through that change in objective, contentment comes and godliness. And so godliness produces that contentment in the heart because first and foremost, godliness understands that knowing and having God Himself and belonging to God is truly great gain and nothing else can rival that. And the one who is pursuing godliness understands that God promises to meet the earthly necessities of His godly ones in Christ so that one rests satisfied, contented, sufficed in whatever God chooses to provide. Let God manage that. What God gives in this life and the next through Christ suffices for the godly. They are not to be discontent or complaining. They are to be content. They are satisfied. And this, this, is, what, this is what the Apostle Paul already had told us about in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy Verse 7b says, train yourself for what? Money-making? No, godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Sometimes we think, well, if I go to work and I don't have the dollar as my objective, then my work is going to be shabby. No, no, no. If in your work you're motivated by godliness, what quality will your work take on? Excellence, right? Or providing for my family, or taking care of my family, or or whatever it is, at home or in the workplace. When you have godliness as your motive, your work is going to be diligent, excellent, and well-managed, but then you're trusting God to provide what you need to sustain your necessities in this life. It's a different objective, isn't it? It's a very different objective. And in light of the great gain of godliness, it becomes irrelevant in this life than what we possess because we know that God possesses us and we possess Him and through Him all things. Isn't that what Paul taught us as well? 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word, of, or, the word or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. I love the Heidelberg Catechism question one. It brings such contentment into the perspective of this in all of life. He says, the the, the catechism goes like this. Here's the question. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we trust God for eternity, but we become anxious about our life, don't we? Oh, the Father calls us to trust Him even in the daily provisions of life. Why would we need to pursue the unnecessary things of this life with a discontented heart when we have Christ and all things in Him? I love the verse 5, and you can just go through the rest of the song sometime. This is, a great, this is a great testimony of what we have in Christ. And can it be verse 5? No condemnation, now I dread. What's the next line? Jesus and all in Him is mine. That's great gain. Living for this. Things above, not on things on the earth. Alive in Him, my living head. I am clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Well, you say, well, pursuing those things won't, make, won't, won't buy, you know, pay for the gas bill. Okay. 
pursuing godliness is what God calls you to. Let Him provide for you in all the things of life. Then contentment comes. God Himself is enough to satisfy the godly heart regardless of the earthly circumstances. And God is trustworthy to provide the earthly necessities of the godly. To live by this understanding is godliness with contentment, and it is truly great gain. There's that shift. I hope you see that shift. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Listen. Keep your life free from what? The love of money. And be content with what you have. And what does the writer there then say next to to fill the heart with contentment. He says, for he has said what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you have God in your house, you have the greatest provider. And he says, pursue godliness. And then you'll be content. And I will provide the necessities of your life. Keep your life free from the love of money. What is great gain to you? Getting what you want out of the material things of this life or having God, pursuing godliness and trusting God to provide your earthly necessities and being satisfied with His provision. Only one is great gain. Only one of those paths will lead to contentment. And if you're in Christ and pursuing godliness, be content with what God provides for you. Secondly, the second piece of understanding that we must have as, we, as, as Paul reasons with us by showing us the, the perspective of the godly contempt. Secondly, number, or letter B in your outline, understand earthly life in the context of eternity. This, this perspective help, helps us with contentment as well. It's verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Okay, what's Paul getting at? Paul is helping us to step back and get the big picture here in verse 7. To step back from our crazed, craving, consumeristic existence. Right? Sometimes don't you feel like you've been in a hole for days and days and just running and running and running and running and running and buying and just busy. And then you're like, sometimes I need this perspective, Paul. I've got to just the big picture. This world when we were born. And when we die, Paul says, we will not be able to take anything out of it. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out. That comes from Old Testament statements like the one from Job. Job 121. Remember what Job said? When when his most precious earthly possessions were taken from him, he said, naked. I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or from Solomon, Ecclesiastes 5.15, Solomon writes, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. See, 
Brandon, where's Brandon? Is he here? He's up there. I don't know. I could grab some batteries. This may have run out of batteries. Think about this, dear ones. You came in with nothing but skin. And you'll go out with nothing but skin. Right? And this life is a short blip in the vast expanse of an eternity in God. Remember, remember Psalm 90? Oh God, you are our dwelling place in all generations. Before the earth and the mountains were brought forth from everlasting to everlasting, what? You are God. We exist, Acts 17 says, in him. In him we live and move and have our being. We exist in him. We exist in God. And God is an eternal being. And this life, this, this is the hard perspective to hold on to. This life is nothing but a short blip in the vast expanse of eternity. Paul's exhortation to us then is to travel light. Right? That's the point. Travel light. Pursue godliness with everything you have because you won't need or be able to bring any material earthly thing with you into eternity. From naked to naked, that's it. And such a short space in between. And then eternity. What am I living for? Doesn't that what that says? It's like, what am I doing? It's <clears throat> those who live for money and make and material things are like the young boy, and I know maybe some. Some of you have had this experience. The young boy, I imagine, who goes with his family to Lake Superior. He visits Pictured Rocks Lakeshore. And what does that young boy do? He looks out and he sees all the rocks on the shores, right? He's like, yes, rocks, I love rocks. And so he starts filling his pockets with rocks and his bag with rocks. And he just spends his whole time sweating and laboring to find ways of packing more rocks into his backpack and his pockets so he can take them home. And all the while, he's missing the awesome grandeur of the great Gichigumi, right? And he's missing time with his father and his mother and his brother and sisters. And then when it's time to go home, his father points to the sign at the trailhead. And what does the sign at the trailhead read? Don't take, you can't take any rocks with you. And he's like, what am I doing all this time? Right, that, that's this. You didn't come with any rocks. You can't leave with any rocks. But what are we going to do while we're here? Spend all of our time putting rocks in our pockets and our backpacks. We, what we acquire from naked to naked, we can't bring with us into eternity. So it's pointless to live for what we cannot bring into eternity. That's Paul's point. It's pointless to be discontent and complaining and grasping for what we cannot keep for eternity. One author said it this way, if you live pursuing money, you spend yourself for what is locked into time and space and has no eternal value. Understanding earthly life in the context of eternity enables the godly to be content with what they have. Live for eternal treasures. Pursue godliness and be content 
trusting God to provide for you what little you need from naked to naked. That's Paul's point. Jesus spoke of this principle. Matthew 6, 19-21, what does he say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24 of the same chapter, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and what? Forfeit his own soul. Or Luke 12, 15-21, Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his, what? Possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The, rich, the land of a rich man produced plentiful, and he brought, thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. How many people, like, build more pole barns, right? So that they can just fill it with all their stuff. That's what they live for. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you'll have ample goods laid up for you for many years, right? Their security is where? In their things. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Paul tells us in a word, pursue godliness with your whole life and let God meet your earthly needs. That is contentment. The last perspective of the contented godly that that Paul gives to us here is in verse 8. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. And, And this really is answering that question. Well, if I pursue... Everything, everything, godliness in all of the spheres of my life, if if I pursue godliness, and that's my heart motive, to know God and to make Him known, right? If I do that, then I'm not going to have enough to take care of my earthly needs. Jesus answered that question too, didn't He? We'll talk about that in a moment. But Paul answers it this way, and he says, if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. What do we, here's letter C, understand what are real earthly necessities. That's what Paul's getting at. We need, to, we need to understand what are real earthly necessities. What do we really need from the nakedness of birth to the nakedness of death? What really do we need? And I think the issue here for us is that we need to level our expectations of necessities with God's expectations, not the American expectations of necessity. If we will understand and embrace what are real earthly necessities from God's perspective, then that's part of the way we get content. What do we need? Well, what are they? Paul says two things here. We have food and clothing. Those two, those two words are a bit broader than they appear in this text. And I think that's part of the help of this. First, the word for food isn't just limited to the food you put in your mouth, but sustenance. 
meaning the things which are needful to sustain life. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's an important category. What do I need to sustain my physical life? Which most importantly is like food and drink, right? Nourishment. But then secondly, the word for clothing, again, is broader than just what I put on my body. The word for clothing is literally coverings. So, so it does have to do with bodily cover, coverings, but it can also include shelter, right? So those are the basic necessities of life. Sustenance to, to maintain physical life and then covering for my body and my head, right? Not a hat, but a house. I need covering. And so Paul says under the Holy Spirit, if, you, if I have what I need to sustain my physical life and I have what I need to cover my body, I'm going to be content with that. And you know what? It's interesting. That's all I really need when it comes to material things in this temporal, material, earthly life. Those are the necessities. If I have those, I can be content. I didn't bring anything in. I'm not bringing anything out. And if I have God and godliness, I'm rich in eternal things which last forever. So I need God, I need godliness, and other than that, I need enough to get me from birth to death and into eternity and keep me covered and sustained. That's what I need. I need enough to sustain a life of godliness. Think of it that way. I need enough to sustain a life of godliness. And other than that, I need enough to get me... And other than that, I I need enough to sustain my life of godliness during my earthly existence so that I can maximize my efforts toward eternal investment. If I have that, I can be content. Now, let's, let's think about a qualification here. Paul isn't saying here that it's wrong to have lots of money and lots of material possessions. He's not saying that either, is he? No. But he is teaching us that what? We don't need them. And that they're not to be our motive. And that they are not our source of contentment. They're not to be the pursuit of our lives. Instead, godliness is to be our pursuit, and God provides the necessities of our life. If God chooses to give earthly wealth to one of His children through various means, that is a wonderful and fine blessing. In fact, Paul's going to talk about that later in the chapter. How should the rich live? But if that child is pursuing godliness, that that wealthy child of God, their contentment won't be based on their wealth. That's the thing. And they'll desire to invest their earthly wealth into heavenly causes because they know they won't be able to take any material wealth into eternity with them anyway. Paul is teaching us to be content with the basic, simple necessities that God provides for us while we live to pursue godliness, or as Jesus put it, seek godliness. First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Isn't that what Jesus is teaching too? It's the same idea. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, 24, or 25 to 34, don't be like the unbelievers who live to hoard for themselves all the material things of this life in a panic, as it were, so that those material things become their source of satisfaction and security and success, and so on. No, no, no. Jesus says, your goal is to be different in life. You live from birth to death pursuing the kingdom of God and His righteousness, knowing Christ, 
becoming like Christ, making Christ known, and you work hard doing that, and God will meet your needs. He'll, he'll, put, he'll put food on your table and clothes on your body and a roof over your head. That's, that's what the Father does. That's what a father does, right? That's what our Father does. That's what Jesus is teaching us. We don't have to be anxious about that. So how can we be content, understand, embrace the understanding of the godly contented, understand what's truly gained first, change your value system. Second, understand earthly life in the context of eternity. Don't live for this life, live for eternity, right? That's what Paul's saying. Understand what are real earthly necessities. Need in your heart, recognize that you need what God says you need, not what the culture says you need. Now, second part of this, this message, Paul gives us a second reason to be content. Escape the destruction of the worldly covetous. Paul gives us a warning here. It's the other option, right? I'm either pursuing godliness or I'm loving money. And there are really only two options. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve what? Two masters. He will either hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. It's one or the other. And you don't remember, you don't have to be wealthy to love money and desire to be rich. Wealthy people who love money desire to have more money, and they're never content with what they have. Always more is desired. Poor people who love money desire what they don't have. Neither are content because they always desire there's always, there always desire for more, and it's always out of reach. So that's the question. Do you desire to be wealthy? Do you love money? Paul, in verses 9 and 10, gives us the negative motivation to be content. He vividly explains the destruction of those who want to be rich desire to be rich. In other words, for this person, riches and wealth are their deliberate will. That's the purpose of their mind. It's the affection and desire of their heart. It's the same person that Paul has described here at the beginning of verse 10, the love of money, right? Avarice, passion for buying power. That's, that's what makes their heart beat. This is describing the person whose primary pursuit in life is to get wealth instead of godliness. This is, this is describing the person who makes daily decisions and determines their priorities based on their desire for money, not their desire for godliness. You see how that works out in daily life? When you make decisions for what you do with your time and your money, is your thought process, what's going to achieve me more money? Or is the thought process about, well, what is most godly? That's an that's a entirely different approach to decisions of life. This is the person who chooses to, to, to neglect knowing God and obeying God's commands because it's more important to him to have the buying power. And ultimately, the love of money is idolatry, isn't it? Like the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He walked away from Christ because he had great, what? Possessions. Well, 
So what happens to a person who loves money and desires to be wealthy? Here's the warning. First of all, we see here that they fall into temptation and into a snare. Paul is described as very picturesque in these, in these final statements. Paul is drawing the picture of someone who is on this ongoing plummet. I picture someone head over heels falling down an endless hill, as it were. An ongoing drop deeper and deeper into darkness. They fall into temptation. That's enticements to sin. The very opposite of what the child of God prays for in the Lord's Prayer. When you pray through the Lord's Prayer, what do you pray? Father, keep me from the evil one. Deliver me from temptation. Well, to love money is to live opposite to that prayer. To walk right into temptation. How many temptations to sin come with a love for money? Numerous. Countless. How many enticements to evil come with greed? What won't a person do to get the money that they crave, right? Temptations to lying, stealing, moral compromise, all kinds. And it's a snare, Paul says. A snare. That's a trap. That's picturesque. You you put your hand in it, it snaps shut on you, and you can't get your hand back out. Paul refers to these snares as being of the devil, 1 Timothy 3, 7 and 2 Timothy 2, 26. These snares are traps the evil one sets for those who love money, and when they reach out to take what they love, they're caught in the trap and they can't get loose. When you pursue love of money and fall into temptations to sin that yield more and more money, and willingly compromise morally and sacrifice duty and and conscience to pursue money, the pull to keep on going feels stronger and stronger. It's a trap. You have to have more, right? It's one of those things. Always more. Because what you have will never bring contentment. Sinning to pursue money comes easier and easier. It's a trap, a snare of the devil that holds on to you and pulls you away from and keeps you from the life of godliness. Love of money will also cause a person to, letter B, fall into foolish and hurtful desires. Look at the next phrase, senseless, harmful desires. When you love money, that's a desire in itself, right? But it's interesting with this desire, this desire gives birth to other desires. The desire that the love to love money produces other foolish or senseless desires. Desires that are morally foolish and often even illogical and irrational. When someone loves money, I mean, how often do they make literally irrational decisions? One writer said, money is the drug, covetousness is the addiction. And what people will do to have buying power and the ability to increase materially is often so foolish morally and even irrational. For example, gambling, right? Or the mindless debt people heap up in order to satisfy their desires. Harmful desires, Paul says. Desires that are captivating and truly hurtful. He says harmful right there. Senseless and harmful. All out of a desire to be rich. That's the key there. That's the key there. 
Others have illustrated the harmful desires that come from loving money with trying to, to drink seawater, right? Salt water. The more you drink, what happens? The thirstier you get. And eventually you'll die, right? That's how it goes with seawater. The more you drink, the more you want until you die of thirst. Such desires steal your life. They sabotage your relationships. They sear your conscience. They are harmful desires. And worse, the love of money will, what does it say? The third element there of warning, they plunge. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. This word for plunge, that's, that's a metaphor. Loving money, the plunge of loving money is like a sinking ship or a drowning person. Like the man who refused to take the gold-laden money belt off from his waist while drowning in water. The desire to get rich and the love of money will take you to the bottom. That's what Paul's saying. It will completely wreck your life. Paul uses two words to describe the wreckage that the love of money brings, and they are very close to one another in meaning, even interchangeable at times. You can see them here, ruin and destruction. The first word, ruin, refers to present bodily destruction. If you take, if you take both of these words together, they could work together as an intensifying statement. Absolute destruction. But you could look at these words separately as, as components. Ruin, meaning present bodily destruction. Like in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, where Paul instructs the, the Corinthian church to do church discipline on the man so that his body may be destroyed, but his soul saved. Remember that? But then also, destruction, the second word, refers to future eternal destruction. As in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, when the Lord returns. And so you have this twofold kind of destruction. Yes, present bodily destruction comes from the love of money, but also eternal future destruction as well. And Paul is clearly declaring that the desire to get rich and the love for money will destroy earthly life and literally bring you to hell. Paul's not teaching that a person can lose their salvation. I always need to underscore that with these texts. But when a person lives by the love of money and their desire to get rich is their way of life without repentance, they're demonstrating that they were never a true believer in Christ because their desires have never been changed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul warns us that the love of money will plunge its victim into ruin and destruction. Paul goes on, this love of money will also, he says, produce all kinds of evil. The beginning of verse 10. Root of all kinds of evils. I mean, no wonder this is desire is so deadly. It's the root. It's a root that produces a tree that is filled with varieties of evil fruit. Picturesque, the love of money, the desire to be rich. It's a trap that won't release the prey. It's a ship wrecked and plunged into outer darkness. It's, it's a root that produces the tree from which all kinds of evil blossoms. I mean, think about that. What kinds of evil have come of loving money? You read about it. You think about it. You've observed it. Selfishness, lying, stealing, fraud, 
tax evasion, robbery, envy, arguing, fighting, hatred, violence, murder, loveless marriages, adultery, divorce, perverted justice, drug dealing, pornography, blackmail, the omission of countless holy duties, betrayal, exploitation, and the list goes on and on, right? All because someone loves money, have to have buying power. And the Scripture gives us numerous examples of the lives of people who love money. Who can you think of through the Scriptures? Achan, Simon in Acts 8, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, Balaam, Numbers 22 through 24, Gehazi, 2 Kings 4 and 5, Judas is the poster child, right? Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Judas lied, betrayed, stole, and what? Sold the incarnate Christ for 30 pieces of silver? That's unreal. That Talk about an irrational desire for money. Boy, that's it's devastating to think about. We see examples all through history in addition to Scripture. I mean, you could, you could look up online. You could maybe do this sometime. The dying words of wealthy men. See what they say. And the last two descriptions certainly fit these people, Judas in particular. Through this, right, what does this refer to? The love of money and the desire to be rich, right? That's this. This craving. Some have wandered away from the faith, right? To wander away from the faith is to depart from the truth of the gospel. That, that's the most frightening thing of all. To turn tail on the foundational doctrines of Christianity. To betray Christ himself. Like Judas, like Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10, there's another example. Both professed Christ for a time, but then turned away from him out of love for money and desire to be wealthy. Again, those who wander away from the faith are not those who were truly believers at one time and then lost their salvation. That's impossible according to the gospel of the word of God. These are they who once professed to follow Christ, who attended church for a while, who seemed to receive the Word of God with joy, who benefited for a time from being among the people of God, like Hebrews 6 talks about. But when it came time to count the cost of following Christ, when worldly pull to get wealthy interfered with Christ's call to follow Him, what did they decide to do? They bought into the deceitfulness of wealth and made money their God instead of Christ, just like Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. They love money more than Christ. They think wealth will satisfy and Christ will not. They were never genuine believers to begin with, and that was just revealed in a matter of time. This is the danger and downfall of loving money and desire to be rich. Finally, Paul says those who love money have pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't hold back here, does he? This is quite a list. It, it must be very dangerous to desire to be rich and to love money. Otherwise, Paul would not have gone to such extent, detail, 
the warnings for us, pierced themselves with griefs, with many pangs. Paul says they pierced themselves. These are self-inflicted wounds, pierced. This is such a powerfully picturesque word. This word has been used for the spit that is used to skewer animals in order to roast them over the fire. One commentator rendered this phrase, spiked themselves on many painful thorns. Pangs, griefs, painful pangs of sorrow and remorse and regret. You know that feeling of having done something that that just caused such devastation and, and there's nothing you can do to undo any of it. You know that feeling? That's a horrible feeling. I hate that feeling. That's what Paul says. If you follow that way, that's the feeling you're going to live with, except multiply it, multiply it by many times. Painful, grievous pangs of regret. regret. That's where the love of money leads. And that's where it took Judas, didn't it? That's where it took Judas self-inflicted pangs of regret and sorrow. These could refer to internal pangs, right? A condemning conscience, a a conscience that that will only be quieted by some chemical substance at bedtime, right? From all the evils born out of the love of money. Or a heart that is never satisfied but only disappointed after every material acquisition. Story upon story we hear of pangs like this, and maybe even they are in our own hearts. Relational pangs, oh, think of this, dear ones, all of the relationships broken and ruined, wives who have left, sons who have gone, husbands, daughters, not only this loneliness, but the devastating, but observing the devastating fallout of our own the behaviors of our love of money in the lives of others as well. And how, how many have regretted what has happened to their family because of this being their passionate pursuit? And then 20, 30 years down the road, they, they can't do anything to undo it, right? Pangs. Or eternal pangs, the most devastating. Earthly life without the love of Christ will lead to eternal existence without the love of Christ. And how unimaginable that piercing of grief, like the rich man that Jesus spoke of who lifted up his, his eyes, right? And please, can I, have, can I have some water to cool my tongue? Paul warns us, this love of money, this desire to be rich is so destructive. And so we have two powerful reasons to pursue godliness and be content with what God provides. In closing this morning, what are we to do with this? How does this text come to your heart? Do you see the root of the love of money there? Do you have that desire to be rich, to have material things, and that is your motivation for so many of the things that you do in life? Do you live mindlessly often of eternity and focused on what you can have in this life? Where is your expectation of needs met? 
Do you know what you need in order to live a godly life? Or do you pursue that life that the American mindset paints for you and you give some to godliness if there's time? Where are you, dear ones? In your own heart before the Lord. Paul desires for us to be content in Christ, pursuing godliness and things of eternity. Would you confess that to the Lord even in your own heart? And and, and in your confession, see, let, let the Word of God, let the Word of God discern us as we are. And then confess it to God as as it is. And then just like John, the apostle, so carefully and graciously shepherds us, come, come to the faithfulness and righteousness of God to forgive and to cleanse. And know that you have the righteous advocate, the perfect propitiation standing before the throne of grace for you. And your father is ready to say, okay, you ready to try again? He's always there like that. So faithful to help us to grow and to forgive our, our worldly mindset. And then he provides all that we need, like a good father does, to keep going, to walk on, and to grow in our passions for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and, and really truly trust the father to provide our necessities. Thankful for Paul's words here. And you know what, ultimately, do you know what, you know what the very core, the ultimate center of being content is? Simply pursuing the knowledge of God. Knowing Him and delighting yourself in Him. Like, like David wrote, Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Listen, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food (laughs) from knowing God. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Dear ones, David knows what he was talking about. How often did he live like a a wilderness dweller, running from Saul, making it. Just making it, right? God sustained him. God can do that for us as well as we satisfy ourselves in him. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. You're not a child of God. You don't know that your sin is forgiven. You don't know that you have eternal life. Well, your whole life then really is motivated about, by selfish gratification. What can you give to yourself that makes you feel happy in this life? And I would say to you the appeal of Isaiah 55. Listen carefully to this. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. 
That this is God's invitation for you to be satisfied in Him, not the things of this life. Why do you... This is what, this is what the writer of Isaiah, Isaiah says. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Do, do you see that picture? The unbeliever unloads for that which is emptiness. Labors for it. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he will abundantly pardon. All of us come into the world idolatrous sinners who seek to have things instead of God. And you know what? God is willing to forgive that, to pardon that, and to satisfy you. But you must come to him through Christ and lay down your sin and lay down your self-righteousness and trust in Christ alone, God will satisfy your soul. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's pray together. Ask God to do these things in our lives. Our Father, we are thankful for this text. It helps us to see a little more clearly into our own hearts. And my prayer is that you would sanctify us in this truth and, and teach us to take these, these perspectives, these principles, these motivations, and, and to learn to apply them to everyday decisions and, and living. Put these, put these spiritual affections into our hearts, Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, and save. Father, save those who are still trapped in their own sin and yet unbelieving and not your children. Save them, birth them, Father. Help them to see that they are spending themselves for what does not matter and that you are willing through Christ to forgive them and to cleanse them and to satisfy them with yourself and prepare them for eternity, which brings endless joy. Father, you are so good, and so kind, and so patient, so merciful to us. And you keep wooing us to yourself and away from the things of this earth. Enable us to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Help us to remember that we are dead in Christ to this life and alive to eternity, alive to Christ. May we live godly lives by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.